Oh yeah. Sure, yeah. This yeah. is a two men one potting after dark. It is. <laughs> Antifada after hours. Yeah, it's like a uh, moody. Like Playboy after dark with Mo- podcast. Moody blues. Oh, oh yeah, that's you. a nice wow. element. Now this see is this is why you're the hype wife, because <laughs> you know how to aesthetically set the scene. I like the idea of a hype wife. That's that's actually like uh, I'm trying to think of some hype wives in history. <laughs> oh, there's been a, I mean There's been a number of hype wives throughout history. Wives. That's that might be like um, we, the we proud tradition a, of hype wives. Uh, a socialist Marxist uh, history is a weapon on like hype wives yeah. through history or something like that. Uh, Theodosia, I think, was a hype wife, the the wife of the ho- of the Byzantine Empire emperor. Mm-hmm. She was like all she was huge. She was very powerful. She oh, um, Catherine de Medici was a hype wife. Yeah, for sure. uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt, serious based hype wife. based hype wife. Based hype wife. Yeah. In she fact, ended up, she ended up being like the the leader of like the left wing of the Democratic Party yeah. after her husband died. She like was she, an like, institution. Yeah, yeah. No, she is the absolute hype wife. Yeah, and lesbian, and lesbian. Yeah, confirmed lesbian. Not like Hillary Clinton, fake no. lesbian. No, no, wife. real lesbian. <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt, confirmed lesbian. Uh, <laughs> also, of course, Barack Obama, a lesbian. Uh, Jamie's off the bed now, so that's a good. That's good for her. Yep. Uh, so you guys, I understand, are going to Europe. I caught you right before a European tour. Is that we're right? leaving tomorrow night? Whoa! Taking the red shit. eye to Amsterdam. Yeah. So when I was like uh, super tired from going back to construction work this week, and I was like, ah, maybe I could push it back to Saturday. That never would have worked. No, no. You would literally be on a plane. Yeah. Wow. Are you hyped? I'm excited. I mean, I'm a little nervous. I've never done this before, but I'm excited for it, too. We're doing, uh, we're ha- Virgil and Will are going early to hang out in Amsterdam and, you know, get over the jet lag and everything, and then take the train to Berlin, which cool. is our first show, uh, which sold out, like, instantly, which cool. I, I was, like, Props very to Berlin. afraid. I was like, well, who's going to go see us in Berlin? Uh, especially since German people, it's like, Humor and American politics. Why would they know about <laughs> either of those things? But there, there's a lot of really good socialists there. I think, in fact, um, I gave Virgil the contact info for our friend Jacob, who lives there. So I think uh, if you guys want the grand tour, he'll show you all sorts of. Uh, I would of love bullshit. to. Yeah. Uh, and then we're gonna go to the UK. We're doing Glasgow, which I'm very excited for. That we're doing the we're doing the rough working class Scottish city, right? Not, not the fancy Hogwarts ass city, the, yeah. the college town. We're doing the town that inv- that has a, a type of facial wounding named after it, <laughs> the Glasgow Smile. And it also has a really bizarre and funny nickname for its residents, which is Ouija's, right? Yes. Am I right about that? And apparently, and they also have their own uh, alcohol, their own like sort of city uh, uh, beverage. It's called Buckfast. Buckfast. And it's this fortified wine that is made in a monastery. Oh God! And which is a very the bottles are very popular assault weapons. <laughs> uh, and we actually uh, our, our producer Chris got us uh, got us Buckfast on our rider, so oh, it'll be nice. at the venue. You guys are uh, you guys are making it real this time. Oh, yeah. now you're going to go. I I've always wanted to visit Scotland. We've been to England, and we'll probably go back to London. Although as our friend from London, Missy, uh, always states uh, London is shite and full of sea slurs. 
You like how I didn't actually say it, but uh, yeah, Scotland and Ireland would definitely be cool. But I have a I have a cool trick. It's uh, it's a trick from the nineties about Scotland. Yeah. Um, doesn't the fresh air make you feel make you feel proud to be Scottish? <laughs> it's shite being Scottish. We're the lowest of the low, the scum of the fucking earth, the most pathetic, servile scum that ever shied upon civilization. Some people hate the English. I don't. They're just wankers. We, on the other hand, are colonized by wankers. It's a shite state of affairs to be in, Tommy. And a bit of fresh air, fresh air will make a bit of fucking difference. It's true. <laughs> uh, that's no, all I got for I've that, that train spot. And that's the other thing I'm excited about is because I've never been to Glasgow either. I've been to Edinburgh. In fact, I bla- my first time I ever blacked out drunk, it was in Edinburgh. <laughs> and I Momentous. have only one memory, one vague memory of being literally... On the pavement, on a sidewalk. Wow. But I ended up in my hostel bedroom uh, because of the intervention of some very kindly Scottish people. So uh, the fact that they didn't murder me, uh, that will always be in my heart. Well, this was Edinburgh, right? Yeah. So I would probably have been killed in, uh, in, in Glasgow. In Glasgow. But I will make sure that doesn't happen. This yeah, no. Uh, but then we're going to go to London, of course. Nice. Uh, Manchester, mm-hmm. which will be really cool. I mm. mean... Uh, I hope that we can do a show in every one of the cities that features heavily in the development of capitalism. <laughs> so we got Manchester now, and I'm hoping we, uh, we're we not doing a show in Amsterdam, but we could do one there. Uh, Venice, maybe. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, get all get all the places yeah. where, like, finance capitalism and, of course, the Industrial Revolution oh, were, uh, yeah, were no. created. Uh, and then we will end up going across the IRC to Dublin, which I'm very excited about. Everyone's very hyped for that one. Because That's cool. We have an ins- a weirdly disproportionate, for a very small country, we have a weirdly disproportionately large Irish fan base. That's great. I mean, if you don't have a reason why now, you might by the time you get back. Yeah. Maybe you'll figure out what that is. Yeah. Isn't Amber really like She goes there a lot. She has been to the, she goes to the UK all the time. She has a lot of connections there, which is going to be great uh, in terms of, you know, meeting people and, and seeing stuff. We're, we've been offered, like, tours of the London, uh, what, like, of Westminster and, 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 uh, and the Scottish Parliament and stuff. Uh, and like, there's a guy who's offered to give us like a left wing tour of Dublin and everything. Nice. Which is, uh, I've been to Dublin a couple of times, and it's it's. I, you probably wouldn't want to tell Scott Irish people this, but it's adorable. Is it really? It's like it's it's, it's very low. Yeah. It's very small. The tallest building in the Republic of Ireland is a church spire, which mm. I've always thought to be that very is very charming, very fitting. Yeah. Uh, for a country that was basically a Catholic theocracy until like <laughs> five minutes ago, they got abortion now. Yeah, finally. and as um, we lose it, but so it's all all very low, and you know, there it's it's all gathered around the Liffey River, and it's just very, and it's all kind of green. Like there's all these limestones. So it all has a green tinge to it. It's it's just a very, very charming little town. It feels like you're walking around in a in somebody's uh like one of those models made out of gingerbread. Or yeah, something. nice. Uh, are there multiple uh, James Connolly statues? There are, and that's the. I mean, that's the radical history. Obviously, is something that makes Dublin very interesting. Not only because you've got these guys, they have this. They had this radical, you know, resistance tradition that. Over time, obviously, you know the 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 socialist aspect of it has sort of been drained out. But yeah. like, there, yeah, there's statues of Connolly. There's big. There's a huge statue of uh, James Larkin, who led mm. the the um, the Dublin uh, dock workers during the 1913 lockout, which oh. is what created the Citizens Army that ended up being the core of the Easter, Easter Rising, Rising guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like, there's you know, there's big, there's murals and stuff with like the proclamation of the Easter Rising and things. But uh, the and but the actual historical sites are what's really amazing because you've got Kilmainham Jail there 
Oh, wow. Which is that is, where the hunger strikes happened? Uh, no, no. Well, not, not during the Troubles. Uh, uh, there were hunger strikes during the Irish, uh, Irish, Anglo-Irish War and the Irish Civil War there, yes. The, the, the ones that we remember all happened in Northern Ireland. But, yeah, no, there were. And they have the, they, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, museum, they actually have, like, uh, uh, one of the pumps that they would use to force feed oh, the prisoners. Wow. But they have, you go through the, through the, the, the uh, you know the the vaulted doors and stuff, or into the into the cell blocks, and they have all the cells, and they have the names of the people who were in them. Oh wow! So you know, like Emmon de Valera and, and Patrick Pierce and stuff. So like Alcatraz, but political. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. And uh, and then they have the the rock breakers uh, uh, yard where they shot them all. Oh, uh, including where they because they shot all of the prison because all the prisoners. All the leaders who'd been brought to the jail were all shot against one wall, but Connolly had been wounded during the uh, the fighting, and he was in a hospital. And so they drove him in an ambulance to the the yard, and they brought him into the through like a service do- gate. And then they, because he was so wounded, they tied him to a chair. Oh my god! And then they shot him, uh, shot him strapped to the chair at the other side of the of the yard. So. Uh, so yeah, you go there. It's very powerful. But uh, for my money, though, nothing beats the general post office right downtown, which was the headquarters of the Easter Rising, mm. and it was obviously gutted by fire and artillery uh, shots during the actual fighting. But the pillars in the front—it has like you know, class neoclassical pillars in the front. Those those were not, none of them were damaged beyond repair, and so they still stood. They built rebuilt the inside. So there's bullet wounds there's like nicks yeah, on yeah. the column so you right. can go up to it and like put your finger wow. where like the you know the bullet went through and that's so crazy. that's the kind of thing you don't get to see everywhere else yeah, but yeah. uh my favorite but the but the Connolly part I, i've actually realized that uh, kind of unknowingly i've i've ended up in my travels creating sort of a uh, uh i've i've been to a number of sites of like leftist martyrdom now Oh, uh, we talked about Perlachaz yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I've been to Perlachaz, obviously, yeah. and then uh, and then the the Kilmainham where they shot Connolly, the street in Oslo and Stockholm where Olaf Palm was assassinated. Oh shit! Wow. Uh, the Lorraine Motel uh, in Memphis where MLK was killed. Oh shit! Uh, and the Landwehr Canal in Berlin, which I oh. hope I want to take Amber yeah. and the uh, other people too, obviously, oh, to, obviously, to show really them that because it is actually a very uh, where it's it's a, it's a commemoration. Like you go to the canal and uh, and they have. Rosa Luxemburg and, and Carl Liebknecht's name in like these big block letters on the railings to remember like, the, like this is where they found them. There's uh definitely do that, and there's uh two other things you should do. The first is like it's like very basic. Like every fucking Marxist in the world, when they go to Berlin, they go uh, to the giant uh, Cold War statues of uh, Marx and Engels. Uh, oh yeah, the modern. I did a selfie and, with I did a selfie with uh, so Marx you, when yeah. I was there last but year. But did you go to Trap Tower? No, what's that? Oh, so Trap Tower, like, neither of us are tankies, right? But, like, we, we can appreciate some of the you know, symbology, let's say, especially after the Second World War. Yeah. There is a uh, an incredibly, it's a, it's a statue, uh, a humongous one in the middle of uh, Trap Tower Park on the east side of Berlin. And it's almost like, like they keep it up, but it's kind of out of the way because it doesn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's this massive, incredible statue to the, um, to the, dead of the red army who okay. fought to actually take right. you know, to, to take the war all the way to berlin mm-hmm. and is uh absolutely epic and uh if you can deal with like uh massive peons to stalin uh <laughs> you know it, it's definitely uh, worth a trip going so i will look at i will, I will look for that for yeah, sure another uh, another place for the martyrs so yeah. uh yeah with that um i guess let's start a fucking pod how do i start this andy 
are you there, Andy? How do I start this show again? <laughs> um, I think I started. I, I started with uh, communist greetings, which is actually a really cute thing that they used to do in the uh, 19th and early 20th century. Like, yeah, they would they'd sign letters like communist greetings communistically <laughs> yours yeah. <laughs> i like that uh so i'll start it like that <clears throat> me 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 communist greetings listeners this is sean kb of the antifada i am back here with another episode of our irregularly recurring uh side project called history is a weapon and with me as always is our friend your friend Matt Crispin. Hey, guys. We are uh, sitting here in the palatial Antifada mansion <laughs> that Jamie and I live in off of our ill-gotten Patreon bucks. So uh, thank you so much for that. Um, of course, by palatial mansion, I mean, uh, you know, relatively decent one-bedroom apartment that we share with our cats and, uh, you know, actually has sunlight, which is a real improvement on our last one. Yeah, it's very nice. I mean, we, we have, at Chapo, we have... Sold the mansion, actually, and now we're just living in a giant, rigid airship <laughs> that just sort of does a constant circle around uh, Brooklyn. That's and then incredible. We, we, we rappel down. Right. Uh, from, like seals. Exactly. Whenever to, we need to, to go down yeah. to pod or, or buy a, Virgil needs to buy a jewel. Or, <laughs> or use the bathroom. We need to go to La Bodenga, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, when the rev comes, it's going to be really helpful to have a dirigible up oh, yeah. there. Oh, yeah. No, know? no, no. It'll, it'll be very tactically useful. Indeed. Uh, and also propagandistically useful because just like the uh, the Goodyear blimp, yeah. you guys can you know put the propaganda up Excellent. there. Absolutely. All that good stuff. Matt and I today are going to be talking about the 1970s, a pivotal decade, if you will. Um, Thank you, Judith Stein, for that. Yes, indeed. Memorable phrase. I actually took a class with her before she passed away. Really? Yeah, was it? it was it was really cool. I bet. Uh, some real like uh, a little bit of small tea from it. You'll you'll appreciate this as a historian, also someone who hates fucking assholes who cave for Democrats. Yeah. Uh, she told us uh, well, I, I audited it, but like audited the class. But she told us at one point that in the uh, I think it was the seventies because she's she was a boomer. She had a capital reading group with her. I forget who the other like. There's a bunch of like Nation magazine liberals, right. yeah, yeah. And Sean motherfucking Willens. <laughs> they had an intensive capital reading group. Well, Willens is a fascinating figure because he, he was a leftist, he and was. he just has now become like the house historian of like the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. And he, anytime they need an op-ed from some guy with like academic credentials that yeah. said, oh. I should I, I should actually backtrack on that because Hillary lost, yeah. <laughs> but, as people might know. But yeah. you know, at that time, whenever they needed somebody to cape for her from like a historian academic yeah. thing, he was right there on the pages of like the New York Times or Washington Post to say about why yeah. Hillary was the candidate, why Bernie Sanders was no good. So yeah, for, uh, it's for, too bad. Um, yeah. Rise of American Democracy is a pretty good book. Yeah, and the one about Jeffersonian democracy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what, what was it called? Uh, well, the big uh, one is this Rise of American Democracy from Jefferson to Jackson. Okay. I, I don't. I don't. That's the only one of his I've read, but it was it was good. Yeah, I it's read good to pair it if you want to. If you, this is just for the for the heads out there who want because like I this find is all the real heads. Nineteenth century, show. most people only get Civil War basically. Everything before and after is right. very fuzzy, and obviously yeah. post Civil War, you're talking like Foner, you know, things like that. But that pre Civil War era is, is, and I think that, uh, and I did this, and I found that it was really helpful. If you don't want to go too far into the weeds. Two big, thick books that cover the same era and from different perspectives 
are uh, Rise of the Galaxy by Willens, and then What Hath God Wrought uh, by Daniel Howe. Oh, interesting. Uh, what's really interesting is that they both, they, they're, it's the same time frame. Uh, they have slightly different emphasis as Willens is mostly about like the the the, uh, the movement towards universal suffrage, right? Popular universal white male suffrage, right. rather. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how is more about? But let's start, start over again about uh, uh, how and the thing. I I accidentally pressed the space bar like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so rise of American democracy by Willens. It's more narrowly focused on on the the the, the move towards universal manhood suffrage. How emphasizes instead technological changes like telegraph and railroad, but they both cover the same time frame, have a lot of the same characters. But Willens comes from the perspective of a in of a very professed and, and unhidden sympathy for the Jacksonian Democratic project. Yes, yes. Whereas How uh, is clearly more sympathetic to the Whigs. Mm. Uh, and Reading both, so the especially Jefferson like, like, Hamil- right Hamilton, one. yeah, yeah, uh, debate, Jefferson yeah. versus or like Jackson versus Clay, really, yeah, okay. because it, it really, it, it, like the the tensions really like spark up uh, after the collapse of the of the era of good feeling and the the Democratic Republican era. But uh, no, it's it's very good to read them both back to back, and then you see just how fucking hard it is to ever know what the hell's going on. Man. Matt, I appreciate uh, that segue because uh, I did want to talk a little bit about historiography, which is a fancy term for the production of historical understanding and theory and the various practices thereof. Mm -hmm. Because um, we are going to be talking about the 1970s. And interestingly, um, it's past, but it's not that past, of course, Um, I myself was conceived in the 1970s. Uh, obviously, I was born in 1980, but um, it is a. Uh, it, it takes a certain amount of uh, time to pass before I think people can really get a, a grasp of what uh, a particular era actually meant in right. retrospect. Yeah. So, in terms of the 1970s, it wasn't until the 90s and the 2000s, and then up till today, that people really started to grasp with things like the rise of the conservative movement. Uh, started to understand how the uh, political economy of that era affected the politics and the culture. And there's been a lot of really good work done since then. And we're far enough away from the 1970s that it's possible to analyze this decade, I think, uh, in a way that uh, is historically fruitful. Yeah. And the reason why we're back at this, because we did uh, that episode uh, 17, Listen, listeners out there, you know, if you really want to appreciate this episode, you could do your homework and go back to uh, the working class goes to hell when we uh, watch Blue Collar and uh, play with a lot of these ideas. But we are going to be continuing on that and talking about this decade of the 1970s as it pertains to today, because Matt and I, in speaking about this, both agree that this decade, as Judith Stein uh, said, is pivotal because so much of what has led us to this point uh, of this declining neoliberalism, the breakdown of legitimacy in uh, government and corporate institutions, and certainly the right and left populisms that we're seeing today are a direct reaction to the kind of material and social forces that arose in the 1970s and then the sort of structures that uh, arose out of it in politics. Yeah, Uh, that's... that's and you're right. It took it took a while for people to realize how one how much things had changed, and in in a very very short period of time, relatively, and and how fundamental those changes were, and how 
when you lead the you follow the string back, it all leads to this crisis. Because that's the way to understand the 70s is that it was it did not change because of some sort of cultural moment. It didn't change because of bell bottoms or right. or fucking, uh, you know, uh, ditch weed or whatever the hell or like all in the family. It, it changed because there was a profound crisis in in uh, capitalist accumulation. And and uh, we are living with the decisions that the policymakers and uh, ruling class made to reorder around that reality and of course the flip side of that too because it's always about the class struggle uh the failures of the left in general and the working class mm -hmm. to uh find a way out of that crisis that did not mean their complete immiseration uh loss of power on the shop floor and in politics and basically a one-sided class war now that we've seen over the last almost 50 years at this point. And so without, you know, backtracking and redoing uh, a whole bunch of research and presentation that uh, I had done on that last episode, uh, I think it's a good time for uh, us to actually get a little bit lazy and punch in the, I don't know, like five, six minute presentation I did about why it was that the Keynesian Fortis consensus broke down in that era and, uh, you know, honestly, it's not my job to educate you. And if you <laughs> check out the show notes, my Venmo is there. So uh, if you want to pay me for my emotional labor, you know, go ahead and do it. So, uh, Andy, uh, cue up that rant. The people at the time, and Cowie, I think, does a good job of this. They blame the stagflation, which was just very difficult for them to understand on two different things. And the first is what uh, bourgeois economists and thinkers always do, which is that crises of capitalism are always exogenous to capital. It's always something outside, right? So they blame the oil shocks, right, that happened in 1973 and then 1979. Yeah, the U.S. had no culpability in right, that. Not it's not like we were propping Israel, up Israel Yom or Kippur, anything. War or the Shah of Iran, right? It's completely endogenous, right? Uh, or they also blame Vietnam, right, for pushing prices up as more and more of the economies on a war footing. Um, but then, of course, the other argument is that Keynesianism broke down uh, because there's this sort of full employment, um, you know, uh, higher wages, uh, kind of sclerotic union built Keynesian economy that cannot handle the fucking upward pressures uh, that all these wages are putting on things. So what happens as the 70s go on and people are trying to face uh, this stagflation without any answers is that the conservatives, they just want to deal with the inflationary factors, which eventually they do under Carter and then under Reagan, whereas the liberals and the unions, they want to deal with the unemployment factor of it, right? They say, well, inflation might be going high, right? We need to create more jobs anyways. We need full unemployment in this sort of post-war Keynesian consensus. So there were two solutions, right, in that case. So for the liberals and the unions, it would be essentially, because of these oil shocks, retooling the entire American economy in order to make it more green, essentially, get rid of our dependence on foreign oil, which would take a massive infrastructure expenditure, which would be very difficult to do. No, just wear sweaters. But that's hard. Yes, exactly. Carter's, Put a sweater uh, on. <laughs> put a sweater on, as, as Uncle Carter would say, right? But the conservative uh, idea was much easier to do, actually, if your capital at this point and your rate of profit is falling. And that uh, policy would just be to discipline the fuck out of labor, destroy the fuck out of unions, and implement austerity to destroy this fucking welfare state. Because guess what, all right? 
In the 1930s, massive, militant, working-class movements rose up around the United States, and they forced the fucking hand of the bourgeoisie, and they used that lever to make FDR create something called a New Deal. All right. It's not because FDR was a nice guy yeah. like Ford. Right. Mm -hmm. It was because the working class was militant and down as fuck. And actually, FDR says at one point we were afraid we were going to get revved. All right. Mm -hmm. They were afraid of the fucking rev. So at the same time, though, there were conservatives and they were waiting in the wings for fucking 40 years to get rid of this thing because they hated the idea of unions. They hated the idea of Keynesianism. They hated this idea of big labor and big government and price controls and intervention and full employment and all this. So what happens in the 70s in between Lordstown and this moment is that the intellectual conservatives and then later the conservative movement uses this stagflation crisis which was a real crisis in order to push through what they had wanted to do since the beginning of the new deal which is the destruction of the power limited as it was of the working class in the united states of america right you start to see this as early as you know 1974 75 in financial magazines and in op-eds and they're calling for a direct assault on labor in order to have this stagflation end have the inflation end you have to free up labor markets and destroy unions there's Full employment shit has to go. They're basically calling back to what Mellon said, the Treasury Secretary for Herbert Hoover, liquidate labor, liquidate stocks, liquidate farmers, liquidate real estate, purge the fucking system, all right? Yeah, so, because liquidating uh, human beings is exactly like liquidating a stock. It's no different. It's the same shit. So, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a sociopathic and fucked up worldview, but uh, such is capitalism. I, I what are you eugenicist. Yeah. What do you want to liquidate? What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> so, really, um, you know, the, the post-war political economy uh, is based on four different things. And in true Marxian fashion, when we do political economy, the same things that give rise to a particular historical conjunction are also dialectically and contradictorily opposed to the ways in which they'll fall apart. So, essentially, the U.S. is the world uh, hegemon, but that takes a lot, you know, for this period uh, of the post-war period the united states controls fiscal policy it's the giant uh, imperial you know master of uh, western europe and much of the world we won the uh, big one we won the big one over there in the second world war uh we had a large uh, fixed capital plant you know the europe and japan was destroyed which was awesome you know like we had all the fucking factories owned. and there were yeah we owned the we, we pwned the fuck out Pwned. of those guys uh we also had like a much more kind of capitalistic economy so there were all these wage laborers ready to go into these factories when the war ends um and you know, at the same time, there are all these innovations that were pent up from the Depression and the Great War that could just be given to the capitalists in order to fucking move forward. So the, but those same things that uh, helped to build uh, U.S. hegemony and the golden age of American capitalism also undermined it at the same time. So if you take a Marxian stance on this, and this is again about counter-narrative, the narrative today is that workers' demands, these indolent, fat, lazy fucks, like the big dick, Harvey Keitel's of the world and the fucking big dick Smokies uh, doing their cocaine and fucking living it up in Detroit ruined the post-war consensus because they demanded too much. But if you take a global Marxian political economic, political economic analysis of it, it's actually a crisis point in global U.S. capitalism because that U.S. hegemony meant that we took our technology transfers 
through the Marshall Aid Program. We gave massive grants to uh, the European powers. We also helped Japan get on their feet. And what starts to happen by the 1960s... Oh, and why did we do that? Sorry to butt in. Because of the motherfucking Cold War, mm -hmm. right? Didn't so, want them going commie. Didn't want them going then we'd commie. we'd never get uh, to have capitalism forever. When I was... I mean, I'd hate to see Stalinism happen all over the place. But it, it is true that this scared the shit out of them. I mean, you know that this is the reason why the Marshall Plan uh, was put into effect because the first places they put the money into were Italy and Greece. Greece with a civil war between the communists and the fascists, and Italy where the CIA helped steal the fucking election away from the communists. They did do that. They did do. So maybe it wasn't just out of our benevolence. But essentially what happens, and I'll end it right here, is that the same things, the same processes that allow America to become the global hegemon bring by the late 60s, early 70s, enough competition globally from all the rest of the capitalist powers that we helped to bring up a situation where there was no longer complementary accumulation of capital around the world, but competitive. So as prices you know, around the world go down, United States manufacturers had put too much into the sunk capital like in Lordstown, and they could not drop their prices enough and the entire stagflation crisis is an overaccumulation of capital that could not be liquidated, could not be wiped out. And actually, many people like Brenner will argue that that stagnation that comes from this period remains to this day. So these workers in this movie were not just these wacky, idiotic people who had race hate and did cocaine and had big dicks or whatever. They were under these real global fucking systemic forces that were undermining the golden age of American capital, capitalism in the 1970s that was a very historically specific time. People who want social democracy nowadays, where are the profits, all right? The extra surplus profits out there with U.S. corporations that you can make that class consensus again. We're if you can answer me that, MMT. Yeah, sure. If you can answer that question, whether MMT or otherwise, all right, and you think we can go back to this golden age of capitalism, send us an email. It's cool. We'll, fucking, we'll address it on the show. Uh, I'm very, I look very forward uh, to uh, hearing those emails because I think that Cowie was right that the 70s golden age, uh, sorry, the golden age was an interregnum between gilded ages and that there is no way out at this point in time. The workers in the 70s and staying alive saw that, and I think we're living with the consequences of that to this day. So there you have it, folks, a nine-month-old distillation of a several-hundred-page book uh, in, you know, just a few minutes. So as always, you know, as historical materialists, as we are, we always ground things in the political, the political economy. Um, so that gives us the background for the more say, superstructural elements and, of course, the more contingent elements because the political economy is the structure and the contingency is often the various ways like an election goes, you know, mm -hmm. or the various uh, cultural indicators and, and whatnot. Right. So alongside this uh, crisis of capital, capitalist production, you also have several other crises. So, of course, you have the famous figure of uh, Richard Nixon, mm -hmm. who uh, is in power from 1968 until 1974. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so he begins the 1970s. Uh, you also, uh, at the same time, have a crisis in, as we talked about on that episode, working class solidarity and uh, also working class institutions, the big labor movements that had been created at that time. And you also have new elements, like new 
um, agents within the political and economic system that are arising at this point in time to kind of challenge the old Democratic Party and redefine what it means to be left. Right. And then lastly, and importantly, too, you also have a horrific war happening in Southeast Asia uh, that leads to the death of not just 55,000 Americans, but, of course, 2 million Vietnamese and uh, a war that was... Let's just let's just say uh, decisively lost by the United States for the first time. And yeah, we got owned. We got fucking owned by a bunch of uh, peasants with Marxism Leninism, and you know that's fine. It, it happens to the best of us. So these are the <laughs> sort <it> of <laughs> these are the uh, these are the sort of uh, results of that. Uh, they're they're intricately tied into it. So uh, let's begin with, I think, one of the more interesting figures, maybe the most fascinating president in U.S. history. I think so. I think so. He he is a very Let's say Shakespearean character. Oh, God. Absolutely. Dick, Dick Nick, Tricky, Tricky Dick, Dick Nixon. Nixon. Tell us a bit, Matt, about uh, our, our man, uh, Richard. Oh, man. He is he is absolutely a fascinating figure. Uh, and uh, it's actually funny. Like, obviously, we've all read the, the Pearlstein books. And the, the, he figured the first three that he's done so far are all centered around a specific Republican figure. Starts with Goldwater, then it's uh, Nixon, and then Reagan in his last one. And they're all good books, but I think one of the reasons that everybody likes Nixonland the most, for the most part, uh, other than, the, you know, there's some hipsters who prefer uh, Before the Storm. But <laughs> and, and it, Before the Storm is very good, and it's covering the, the ground that is least covered by other historians, so it's the one that's kind of most essential to read because you probably don't know about Clifford White and all that shit. Like, yeah. you don't know about how the Republican, like, the, re the conservative movement was born, you know. Uh, but Goldwater is very boring. He was. Oh, sure. He, he yeah. basically was the least neurotic human on earth. Yeah. He was just like a. He was a. He was a cowboy. Yeah, he was Arizona. Just an Arizona yeah. fake cowboy yeah. who who got in, who inherited a department store, <laughs> and was just like, "This is great. Why can't everything be like this?" Right, right. You know, and just and, and like he and he even wasn't personally racist. I mean, he was obviously very racist in his policies, but sure. like he he didn't states have any rights, kind of weird. Though. Yeah, he actually I mean, believed in that whole. Yeah, like he he, he he refused to have George Wallace on his ticket in '64 and all that. Uh, he's just he's he's a very one dimensional figure, and of course Reagan is a zero dimensional figure. Oh, sure, Reagan yeah. is like the man who wasn't there, just yeah. this absolute nothing. I Almost the uh, the right wing Obama in a sense, people projecting themselves uh, onto Obama him. Obama fucking knew that he called him. Yes, he always did. talked about Reagan <laughs> he because knew, he yeah. saw that. He, like yes, he he is just the transparent figure, and so those two books, as good as they are, are sort of made less just pulpily entertaining because the figure at the center of them is this void. But Nixon, Nixon, Ooh. depth, so much depth. Feel like, that onion and cry. It's like that's <laughs> like when I read when I read before the storm. I was I knew I was looking out. I was because I, I remember I was waiting for that book. Like Nixon, Nixon Land was one of the books I mis most anticipated coming. Out. I remember book. I worked at Barnes and Noble when it was like announced, and I remember seeing it in our catalog like coming out. It had a different title. They changed the title uh, between its initial announcement and then that coming out. And or subtitle rather, and I remember just like being psyched because there's one scene in Before the Storm because Nixon is a character in Before the Storm because mm. he contested the '64 convention as Reagan is a character in Nixon. Like yes, uh, and uh, and it talks about it talks about Nixon, uh, and it talks about him having to go up to uh, to Fifth Avenue apartment of uh, uh, Rocky Nelson Nelson motherfucking Rockefeller. Yeah. And the basically, head liberal the liberal, the head York. of the liberal Republican, where he had to go up there, and this was in '60, where he had to go up there and basically grovel at his feet and get him 
and, and accede to his sort of broad agenda for the Republican Party in order to get his support in 60. Pay a Beasons in order to be the vice president to Eisenhower. No, no, this is when he was running in 60, and he got beat oh, by, by Oh, he Kennedy. got beat by Eisenhower, okay. No, no, by, when he got beat by Kennedy. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. So, yeah, yeah like, he, yeah. Was, he, was, he, was, he was going for the nomination, and Rocky was, like, the last sort of obstacle. Okay, yeah. And he had to go to Fifth Avenue, and he had to, like, basically beg. And just, it's like a one-paragraph part, but just the description of, like, the, the description, he, he clearly understands that Nixon understood this as debasement, right. as, him, as him being humiliated again. Yeah. Again. Once again. And always. By the, by the elite. <laughs> and always. fucking Harvard bastards. Once again and always. And, 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 and that is like what makes him, you know, such an interesting figure and a, and a real, and like, not just a character, but a very human yeah. uh, figure because in he history. Was he not only represented aggrievement in the United States, he lived he did, Yeah, he was not manipulating it. He no. Was not being, he was not being cynical. No. He felt it in his heart, bones from when he, was, when he was a kid growing up in Whittier, California, the son of a failed grocer. Yes, he was like this. He was, the, he was a lower middle class fail son. Yeah. Well, no, actually, he was a succeed son. No, he son, was a success but his, son. But, his, but like living in like, you know, pretty abject conditions yeah. at that time, but all also having gone to a private school where there are all these like mm-hmm. fancy lads yes. just built this sort of weird not like a working class class well, hatred, but a lower middle class and, class and that hatred. is what we've been living with ever since and right. that's why Nixon's so interesting mm. is this resentment that is not class oriented it's a resentment of elites right. that has somehow been drained of a class character which is kind of like I, I kind of wonder if Marx would even think that was possible. In, like, <laughs> if eighteen seventy, if you explained to him, yeah, no, these people, like you know, they have they, they grow up in abject conditions and they're and they're manipulated by the elite and they hate all the rich people. It's like, oh, that's good, yeah. But here's the weird part: <laughs> they actually don't think of it in class terms at all. Right. It's like this personalized, uh, 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 like almost like melodramatic uh, 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 thing. It has no, it's not, it's no structural component to it. Maybe I mean. Uh, you know, not to sidebar too much, but perhaps like uh, they're like the peasants, you know, that the sack of potatoes, right? Like, uh, that, yeah, <laughs> that counter revolutionary. No, and, 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 and he did not. I mean, like he grew up poor, but not in a working class milieu of any kind right, like right. out in the out in the like the high plains or whatever. Uh, my favorite thing about him as a teen is that he he went to Arizona because his, his brother had tuberculosis. Both two of his brothers died of tuberculosis. And the one who lived ended up being like a uh, sort of a, like a kind of a hunter biden uh slash uh billy carter oaf who kind of was a millstone around his neck his whole life oh that's funny Uh, because donald uh, nixon yeah because donald nixon was uh my grandfather's roommate at duke university oh shit yeah that ass yeah no he was a complete (laughs) dipshit and apparently and, and nixon uh had like plumbers and stuff following him around and like taped him because he was worried that he so, was gonna fuck he, him up because he actually there was a mini scandal in 60 about him like getting like questionable loans or something so like clinton's uh yeah exactly brother, yeah, yeah 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 like roger clinton and um but he was a carnival barker when i was a teenager which i always just imagine him there like wearing you know like one of those gay 90s striped vests <laughs> and boater on getting people to like throw throw darts at a duck or something right. but yeah, so he went. He was a smart kid. He went to. Uh, he tried to go to a. a, 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 a he applied for a, elite schools. Didn't get into any of them. Had to go to Whittier College, which at the time was a uh, was a, a relatively uh, small, uh, a relatively new university. Where, but even there, there was a 
Upper crust, the yes, Franklins. The Franklins. And what was the name of the one that he The created? Orthogonians. Yes, the Orthogonians. He created his oh, own yeah. club for <laughs> the guys who couldn't get into the Franklins and they were and the premise was all around resentment of right. the Franklins. It was like the it was like a revenge of the nerds. Type it's thing. absolutely we'll make our own fraternity yes. of uh, you know. Yeah. Orthog and but like just to think you like how square can you be? As a man, to oh, name your to fucking be thing, the orthogonians. It means that I didn't even know what that meant. It means to, at right angles. That's what it means. To be orthogonal to something. Uh, so, and then he tried to go to a, a f fancy law school. Couldn't get in any of those. And he had to go to Duke. He's one of the first graduates of Duke Law School because it was brand new right. when he went. Um, and yeah, he came back from World War II. Got rejected from a bunch of white shoe law firm firms yes, in New York. Yes. Uh, he applied to be an FBI agent too, oh. and he was rejected by that as well. Uh, and then he ended up basically applying for the job of congressman uh, in Orange County. He went before a, a group of of big money local business tycoons who were trying to unseat this uh, kind of pinko Democrat uh, oh. Jerry Voorhees, mm. and he went there in his World War II Navy blues and just like pitched himself as their candidate, and they decided to back him. Uh, and he he won his race by red baiting uh, uh, the hell out of Jerry Voorhees, and it won worked. Uh, not got, his not his last. No, uh, no. Then he got in the baiting. Senate by red baiting the hell out of Helen Gahagan Douglas, yeah. calling her pink down to her underwear. Yeah. Hang, hang out with uh, Donald Trump's homeboy Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn, yes. Yeah. Uh, made us. He was. He actually McCarthy stole his shtick. Uh, like Nixon was the guy who pro who was most prominent in 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 grilling Alger Hiss. Uh, and, and, and he was the guy who cultivated and, and coached Whitaker Chambers in his in his testimony against his. He made his name on anti-communism, uh, but then it, he did such a good job that he ended up getting on the uh, the ticket with Eisenhower in '52. And then there was nobody there left to do the job. And and, and, uh, and McCarthy was just McCarthy like, just like he just uh, picked up the ball and ran with it. Yeah, and then McCarthy uh, ends up uh, going too far by going up against the military yeah, establishment, and then uh, is disgraced, and then drinks himself to drinks death. Drinks himself to death. Yeah, yeah. As, Matt one, Gatz, as one does. By the way, Matt Gatz, the Florida Trump guy, get ready because like he is. You know me, DUIs that guy is. Have you heard of this dude? Yeah, Matt Gatz. Me, yeah. He's a congressman from yeah. Florida. He threatened uh, Michael Cohen before he testified oh, on cool. a tweet, which might get him disbarred. Uh, yeah, he's got, like I would think four so. DUIs. Oh, nice. Uh, but no, he's going to end up in the in that McCarthy Florida, road. Florida man. Uh, yeah, he is a Florida man. But so Eisenhower, he's Nixon. Or Nixon is Eisenhower's VP for eight years. Eat shit. Eisenhower doesn't like him. Doesn't really give him anything to do. Uh, and then. I think the thing that he hated Eisenhower for more than anything is that in the last year of his term, when Nixon was lining up all the ducks to be the next nominee for the Republican Party, there was a recession. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And there were, you know, as always, there are uh, monetary levers that you can pull to try to, you know, stimulate uh demand or something like at this point you had this, like this was when you had the 92 yes, percent tax rate right i was you know? gonna say this high keynesianism exactly point, it's yeah. like there's plenty of buttons to press like, sure uh yeah. but they didn't do it because you know they were they were serious these were the last you know real like republicans who took fiscal <laughs> austerity seriously and something right. like that. uh and so they're what they're like the economic conditions were not great when he was running against kennedy and uh he ended up i think among other things blaming eisenhower for his loss another elite 
who right. fucked him over. Sure, and and also too, like uh, probably taught him one uh, a lesson once more that uh, you need to pull tricks in yes. order to win elections. You got, exactly, choose the economy. You got to do. You got to do. What you got to do. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, and that was the enduring lesson he took from that because when he finally gets in uh, in the election of '68, uh, barely beating Hubert Humphrey, who uh, stormed close. He was trailing for most of the election. Came very close. Because he finally, in like October, came out and said, "Actually, Vietnam, this is not a good idea. Let's get out of here." Meanwhile, Nixon was saying he had a secret plan yeah, to end the war. Plan. Secret plan. Uh, it's gonna not. It's totally not gonna be bombing the shit out of Cambodia. We can't tell you what it is because then they'll know. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, what he was actually doing, and this is his greatest crime, I honestly believe, worse than anything he did in office, is that him and I, him and Kissinger, who was uh, uh, an advisor to the Johnson peace uh, negotiations that were happening in Paris, went behind the administration's back to back channels through uh 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 through uh this woman Anne Chenault who was like a anti-communist uh queen of of Southeast Asia and she was deeply connected to the to the regime in north uh south Vietnam DM. yeah yeah uh well DM was dead by that point okay. i think it was well we uh, killed him we the killed CIA him killed yeah him yeah, yeah. Okay. uh i think this was uh big men one of the men's i don't know uh but uh she said don't make a deal We'll get a better deal out of Nixon. Do not, do not let them, do not cooperate with this thing. And so even though Johnson had resigned in order to, or not sought re-election in order to like finish off Vietnam, uh, it didn't happen. And then when they finally made the deal, the deal that got Kissinger's Nobel Prize, it was essentially the same deal that right. was on the table in 68. And, and I want to add a, uh, another relevant point to that too because there's so much talk about the deep state nowadays, yeah. which despite... It being a right wing talking point, like is a real thing. It's a thing. Don't let them. There's institutions that that persist (laughs) beyond the the transient, like political, you know, coalitions that hold power. It's the civil servants, and of course, it's also the uh, the national security state, and also those segments of capital connected to that. But the an interesting thing is. Lyndon Johnson figured out what Nixon had he done in that, and he didn't say anything. anything because. And this is so, this is so American, and oh, this God. is so Democrat. Even Lyndon Johnson, who's a mercenary fuck, he, he was a cold-blooded, like yeah, political you, operator. Yeah, as much of a pat you on the back Nixon, while he's shiving you in the as fucking, ruthless as Nixon. Yeah, but but as a good American uh, Democrat yeah. and uh, politician. He understood that if he made public that Nixon had basically committed treason yes. and also undermined a peace process in order to win an election, that it would be bad for norms yep. and U.S. institutions. Yep. Yep. And he kept it fucking he quiet. Did, which, is which, again, astounding. folks, the fucking historical resonance of this, again, yeah. you know, it's incredible how these folks, you know, who, who believe in this system will lie and obfuscate and even omit serious crimes like making side deals with an enemy power you know in order to you know basically swing an election in your favor also i mean it's cliche at this point but if if one side can do that and without without there being any chance of there being repercussions then you're not protecting any norms because they, they could be shredded at the at will by whoever realizes they can be right yeah. whoever decides that oh this is this isn't actually a screen you know like there's not 
there's no glass in this window. I can just push my hand to the right. And and then so Kick that means down this, the open door. So that means that there is no norms. Right. There's, there's only the 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 fantasy of norms. Yeah, well, like the norm that uh, the Espionage Act of 1917 will not be used against journalists, even though it explicitly like what it outlines as sedition in that act is essentially what like national security journalists do. Yeah. And we're seeing with Assange that the Trump administration is going to put him away for. A, 175 years on 17 counts of breaking the espionage act and if you read the commentary on it the commentary is always like yeah um you know journalists and uh, constitutional scholars have said for the last hundred years that there are like serious constitutional issues with this in terms of freedom of press but everyone thought it would be okay because they didn't think anybody would actually go and attack (laughs) journalists in this manner so they just kind of let it go yeah and so like that that sense of like well nobody would actually do that in the era of Trump, and then God knows what happens after Trump, uh, is, is just this sort of like um, downward spiral of yeah. uh, delegitimacy and, and all that happy horse shit. But, but back to Nixon yeah. then. So, so, so he gets in, yeah. and what defines his whole approach is a... I, you wonder to what degree he believed it, to what degree he knew that it was self-serving, but he had a firm belief that he was the only... He was, he was a prophet of American decline. Mm. Like all of his efforts, opening China, mm. the concept of triangular diplomacy, the Bretton Woods shit, everything. He saw that the American moment of global dominance was ending. Uh, and as such, he needed to be there to manage it. Very forward, so that we you. could so that we could handle it, so that we could persist as a nation. Because none of our institutions and, and our economy were not built to deal with a reduced American, like, you know, uh, p- economic and political preeminence. As we saw in the 70s. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so he thought anything he did to stay in power was justified on those terms. Mm. Bombing Cambodia, uh, re- uh, sabotaging the peace tr- 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 treaty, and then throwing out all of the Republican financial orthodoxy. Uh, because the main thing to th- the main thing the main thing about Nixon that we need to remember in the context of the seven the coming seventies crisis is that because he was the one who recognized what was happening because the the because the the war spending and the uh, uh, and at this point like the the plateauing like uh, power of of labor unions to like negotiate wages was creating this inflationary spiral uh, that. He needed. He would do whatever it took to keep the economy moving along in the short term, regardless of its long term impact, so that he could get reelected, so that he could finish the job. And so he did things that made his Republican advisors like shit themselves, like right, w- yeah. like wage and price controls. Right, right. And uh, it's interesting because it remi- that reminds me almost of um, of like a reverse FDR in a sense. You know, like FDR is this like famous class trader, yeah. right? Who's willing to throw anything he can against the wall in the New Deal, right. even if it goes against all the orthodoxy of like American politics and economic policy, and uh, is able to craft some sort of thrown together semi-social democratic thing. Yeah. Nixon's just you know with duct tape and a fu- like MacGyver, you know, yeah. just trying to just throw whatever he can at yeah. it. It's like a pl- he's like trying to like keep the wing on the plane <laughs> while it's flying, uh, while the gremlins on the side of yeah. it, you know, uh, and John Lithgow looks out. So. So, so I think that that goes to show too that that Nixon, as as much as like we know him for his corruption 
and uh, we know him for his uh, criminality, and we certainly know him for his downfall because he is like the representation in American politics of what it means for a politician to fail. Yeah. You know, the only president that was going to be thrown out by impeachment and of course the person that people always reference when it comes to trump on top of all that and maybe more importantly than that he was a deeply serious politician oh yeah and a, a brilliant man no uh, he was he was very smart and 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 one one thing that that pops out and i remember this from nixon land was it was um i want to say it was one of the midterm primaries when he's the vice president under eisenhower and Eisenhower sends him out. So this was either 54 or 58. Mm -hmm. Eisenhower sends him out to basically like help in the House and the right. Senate yeah, to yeah. get Republicans elected. And uh, Nixon chooses, because this was his want, to run on right to work. And he does that. And in the 1950s, you run on right to work when that generation had lived through the Depression mm -hmm. and built those labor unions and mm -hmm. understood what it meant. Like the Republicans should have fucking landslided, but they completely fucking shit the bed. So at that point, as Pearlstein says, Nixon never again is in his entire political career went up, went against the working class in rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Right. Because he understood that uh, that was a boundary within this consensus that existed that politically you could not cross. Mm -hmm. And then as the Vietnam War heats up. As the civil rights movement leads to a backlash, as these fucking long hairs start going out on the streets and smoking dope and just stooping all over the place. Shitting on the American flag. Yeah, shitting on the... I listened to his, uh, his uh, 1968 RNC uh, acceptance, and he, he talks like for five minutes about desecrating the American flag. Like, that was his thing. He realized that, like, his personal aggrievance were starting to be shared yes. within this backlash culture. He was before a man ahead of his time in that respect, and, and he understood it. He understood, and we gestured at this in, the la in that episode, he understood that there were segments of the white working class, and I'm not even using that ironically at this point, <laughs> because the organized working class during this era was primarily white right. for historical and racist reasons, right? He understood that there was a generation of working class people who were deeply alienated by the social changes happening within society. Mm -hmm. And because he, he had a deep-seated agreement of his own, he was able to, like, telepathically recognize yes. the silent silent majority agreement out there yeah. and weaponize it uh, for law and order law and order against these criminal elements who are out there you know like marching at Selma yep. or you know trying to levitate the fucking pentagon <laughs> <laughs> whatever the case may yeah. be and like the, the the signal moment of that is the uh, the hard hat strike here in new york oh yeah when uh, a bunch of, uh, of builders beat the shit out of some uh, hippies near a city hall. Those are my people. Well yeah. done, guys. We got them. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Nixon, as soon as that happened, understood what was going on. And he, he made it priority one to sort of cultivate relationships with those guys. He made uh, his labor secretary, who was a union head, which is very rare for a Republican oh, yeah. figure. Uh, and he made this explicit. Now, the even in this attempt, like, even though at this point, uh, and certainly after '72, uh, the top echelons of the of the main labor uh, organizations like the FLCA, George Meany, they were very deeply alienated from all of these social forces, oh, yeah, and increasingly alienated from the Democratic Party, which right. came to a head in '72, '72 convention. Uh, but even they were not down with this. Like Meany, you know, he would meet with Nixon, but he was also 
critical of Nixon. He never yeah. really embraced him fully. We're talking George Meany, the leader of the AFL-CIO, a local one plumber and pipe fitter yes. from Queens, New York. Yep. Uh, he was a he was one of these figures. And again, go back to 17 and redo your homework. But like you have to understand that. The union leadership in the era that we're talking about in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they got their positions because they were the benefactories of the left wing, the militant wing, the mm -hmm. radical wing of mm -hmm. the U.S. labor movement, that wing that could have deepened, you know, not just social democracy, but militancy, you know, a just in general on the shop floor across the United States, when those people were eliminated first with Taft-Hartley uh, and then uh, with McCarthyism, mm -hmm. the people like George Meany that arose were by necessity business unionists and like socially conservative in a sense because they got their positions by selling out the most militant me like members and leadership of the unions that, that they were part of. Yes. So Meany is this very powerful cigar-chomping uh, union leader and, uh, yeah, they're, they're caught in this tough position because, of course, they cannot go completely to Nixon because yeah. Nixon is a, actually at this point a – he's kind of straddling this position because he, he tried right to work and, of course, people rejected that, right? He can't go full labor, right? Mm -hmm. but, uh, and Meany can't go full Republican. But it, was it in 72 that the Democrats finally do not endorse anybody? The, Am I right about that? Uh, the the meaning, yeah. The FL did not, FLCIO did not endorse Montgomery, which is huge. Yeah. So and they had been the in they in '68 basically the entire infrastructure for the Humphrey campaign had been completely funded and manned by the uh, AFL-CIO. Yeah, and, and, and then four years later, they didn't endorse the Democratic nominee. And so now, like we, we've been talking about Nixon and the Republicans, but again, like. Um, the the way that the Democratic Party is set up, and did we talk about this? And we talked about this in the U.S. history why there's no Labor Party yeah. in the United States. But like, people should remember that the Democratic Party was never never a Labor Party. The labor unions that come out of the 30s and 40s uh, become a instrumental interest group. Yes, maybe the instrumental one within the Democratic Party, but they never have the levers of control and they're never hegemonic within it. No. So it is the um, it is this uneasy alliance between the Democratic Party and organized labor that persists through this era. But we start to see breaking down because of all of the other kind of social forces pulling mm -hmm. these things away. And Nixon is very, very good at kind of trying to find that wedge, yes. you know, that. Not red wedge, uh, white red wedge. Too, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In between them. <laughs> yes, and uh, he w he was successful, very successful at it. And then, uh, but so he spent his first term basically stuffing, you know, like when the trash can's getting up, and you know you need to take it out, but you don't want to, so you just push it down a little bit. See if you can get a little. He's basically doing that with the like the the clearly fracturing uh, economic political economic uh, consensus or like yeah uh, no 68 right, uh, rates of profit on industry start to decline and yeah. you have the beginning of what becomes a secular depression. secular stagnation yeah. yeah and they and that's because what we talked about with the Brenner thing is yeah. that the, the cold it was all the Cold War it was all the context of the Cold War defined both our hegemonic position that led to the glory day of the American working class in the 50s and 60s and then it's also what killed it because while we were building this up we were also needing to fight off the communists by propping up our erstwhile enemies 
And we propped them up so damn good that now they are competing with us. Dialectics, motherfucker. Yeah. And so, and and that is, and yeah, it's it, the it's the it's the contradiction at the heart of what at the time everyone thought was just the that's the way it is now. We're just right. a prosperous country. We yeah. are all we have to do is wonder what do we do with all this plenty? Yes. That's the only question. How do we distribute the like that was Johnson's whole thing. The, the whole war on really? poverty. The idea was poverty is going to be gone. Right. Like, like, the whole concept of people being in any kind of want. That's absurd. We it, have enough, and it, we did it, it, we for a did, while. Yeah. We did, and it was and it was and it was Keynes's. Um, he, he was basically operating on the. Uh, it was the economic future of our grandchildren. This, uh, I believe, that's what it's called. This famous uh, essay by Keynes, where he basically argues that this society of capitalist abundance uh, is going to lead to things like a, I don't know, sixteen-hour work week yeah. and plenty for all. Yeah, and this is a striking thing. Again, like. Why the 70s is important is because it was possible to believe that in the 60s. And this was the framework that most people who had had some modicum of success in, in the society. Of course, there were marginalized people and people who were not included within this. Right. But a lot of the social actors at that time had this sense of progress and also not just understood this abundance, but witnessed it. You know, the Jetsons was a cartoon fantasy, right? But it was also, in a sense, you know, what, what people imagine the future to be like. And for that to break, yeah. for that to break on people Almost is such a shock. All, in an in stunningly short amount of time. Yeah. Because, like, you're talking about, like, 68, you had, you know, like, the late 60s is sort of the, 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 the high point, right? You know, that's where we've gotten, like, our highest level of, of, of you know, we've got profit, we've got... Uh, property. The war on poverty had an uh, astoundingly f- fast effect on the oh, rate yeah. of poverty. Poverty just plummeted. One hundred percent. In like a Not few 100%, years, but like eighty right. percent. But like, uh, <laughs> but it uh, poverty plummeted in 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 a few years w- w- after the war on poverty began, and it really did look like the trajectory was there. My favorite thing about uh, one of my favorite things about the very revealing thing to me about LBJ. Mm. If we wanted to explain LBJ to somebody, I would say. When he was really in the guts about Vietnam and he just was like, oh, fuck, we're f- what the fuck do we do? His big idea was he was going to offer Ho Chi Minh a Tennessee Valley Authority for North Vietnam. <laughs> wow. That was what his idea was. It's like, look, we, we got the money. We got this. Yeah. We'll build you some dams. Right. It's some electricity. <laughs> and then you can just stop like sending guys down there. Uh, and of course, they're like, no, we're, this is a nationalist. You know, we're trying to create yeah, a. It was an anti-colonial. Yeah, we're the yeah. Euro colonial power. <laughs> Our whole deal is not being colonized. And of but, course, like by the time the '80s came, that would have been like they would have been in debt service. The Vietnamese exactly. oh, yeah, to like uh, I don't know, fucking Goldman Sachs yeah. or whatever. But but, but, but like, no, just I, the thought that but just that yeah. that was his thought. Like, right. well, you just build a dam. And and it's and it's incredible. That was what we thought. We thought you point a thing <laughs> and you could do it. And the starkness of this sense of how do we distribute abundance yeah. to and like, then within five years of that yep. you had the gas shortages you had exactly you had lines going five blocks to get a rationed amount of gasoline for your giant car <laughs> right and in set yeah your chrysler that fucking you know t- is like f- uh what uh four miles to yeah, the gallon yeah or whatever uh thanks detroit so yeah nixon you know again is this shakespearean character at the end of every uh tragedy you know that uh character has to have a fall and again nixon's is is quite the fall oh boy so um you know we we bring ourselves uh through this point of the 70s where he's plugging holes he wins decisively in 72 mm-hmm. of course. because it was working is the thing right the economy i mean he he, he we're he, all Keynesians. he had, <laughs> he, he had it, it, what, i mean all of his most it's funny it, this is why it's so shakespearean because all of his most uh machiavellian uh 
machinations had worked. Like he had gotten his peace deal with Vietnam, which was on the table in '68, uh, and all of his like short-term uh, gimcrackery and and gimmicks had worked in terms of the economy was growing, the economy was thriving uh, in '72. So he was probably going to win anyway. But he was really aided by the fact that at the same time that he was running uh, with a unified Republican Party behind him, he was running against the Democratic Party that was in the process of completely breaking apart. Right. Because uh, because the pressures of new groups that demanded representation within the Democratic Party led to a reform of the Democratic Party nomination process, the, the McGovern Commission, after the 68 debacle in Chicago. Mm-hmm. They changed the way that delegates were apportioned. They increased the role of primaries. They decreased the power of machines and the unions, which, I mean, famously, Richard Daley was not was not a credential delegate in the 1972 And, and Daly had uh, done so convention. much for, for, for them by uh, uh, rigging the election in Chicago. Yeah, to well, get he, was, he was one of the, I mean, you want to, like, talk about, like, what the, what the, what the actual institutional mechanism, uh, the, the institutional design of the Democratic Party as a machinery. Like, Daly in the Chicago thing was not only emblematic of the approach to urban governance in most democratic cities democratic controlled cities but he's personally just the size of the the, the the city that he ran essentially by fiat oh sure that's hugely powerful yeah, position and, <clears throat> and within four years of hosting it and cracking all the hippie skulls in 68 four years later he can't get a lanyard and, for 72 <laughs> he can't be a lanyard that's yeah. a shame uh the johns wouldn't even invite him to a fucking party yeah right? Uh, yeah, folks uh, who don't know what, uh, you know, that machine politics we're talking about, you know, it's that Tammany Hall conception yes. of uh, patronage and the mm-hmm. spoil system where you get into office and you have various constituencies, all of who you whom you take care of with like an envelope or a nice little uh, job, a sinister somewhere. And uh, you take care of your constituents in like vaguely corrupt ways. And they do the nice thing by uh, going to vote you into power, sometimes with a $5 bill in their back pocket <laughs> because yeah. uh, some guy from the machine showed up to yep. make it happen. And and this is another case where th- like these things don't just happen. They're defined by contradictions within the system. Uh, the, the, the old Democratic machine worked in a, in a broad sense, but it was also, by definition, exclusionary right. in a way that was no longer tenable right. with an expanded electorate yes. and with a energized and, and politically conscious like black uh, uh, population in cities that had been previously been sort of subordinated to these these machines and, and Latinos and, and women wanting to Yeah, so when when people uh, when they t- tell you that like social movements are just like virtue signaling or whatever, like it was massive social struggle by millions of people, yeah. many of whom were jailed and beaten and of course some killed and uh, imprisoned for this that forced uh, basically this contradiction. It heightened it, let's it say. Heightened it. it heightened that contradiction. But the problem, the tragedy break. of it is that it broke the old system, but it did not build a new one. Exactly. It, it, it did not have the social base to do that because it was not organized around a class politics. It did not have those, like, cause it, the, the, the old machine was built around, you know, like municipal governance, like who's, you, you get your cousin a job as a, as a garbage man or whatever, and then the unions. Right. And so you had people whose job depended on showing up for a union meeting or putting out land uh, pamphlets or donating to campaigns. Mm-hmm. You had a, a direct structural di- pipeline of power diffusion and, uh, and of operational, uh, 
power. You could make people do things. Yes. And they 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 could they could they they mobilized. They 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 made the they made your machine move. And and, and this new yeah. group did not have those connections. Right. They they were representing communities that did demand representation, but they that representation because it didn't have a class aspect, it didn't have a material connection to the party was defined then by the mere the mere and totally insufficient act of voting. Right. And all it ended up being was a bunch of people who have a broadly similar like outlook on something voting in an election. For a representative not, that exactly. supposedly will be in their interest ideologically. Not, no, no yeah. Not not going to no meetings, you know, no 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 volunteer networks, no money network. Right. No, that's a big one, obviously, yeah, yeah, because yeah. like the neoliberal turn for the Democrats is defined by them replacing absent union money with finance money, which because is yeah, there's there's no mechanism to get these people who are now into the system uh, reinforcing it and funding it and keeping it going, which like when you were talking about the machine in the way that you were a couple of minutes ago, I was like I was kind of smiling because you think about how that kind of machine politics works. And of course, we don't want to go back to that. No, it, no. Was, it was horribly corrupt. Well, yeah, right? and you can't but anyway. You we can't got new, we're, yeah. The fucking dialogue. We got to make new things. Right. Out of what we and, have. And, and we'll talk about why that, like how that breaks down. And then uh, like we're talking about how it breaks down. We'll talk about what it led to. Right? right. But it's funny now, like to even imagine this, this, this idea that like powerful institutions that like vaguely represent, you know, like class interests, could be interceding in politics in a very direct and transactional sort of way instead of how it is you know now and has been in our entire lifetimes where it's essentially just the hand of capital yeah not the invisible hand but the visible hand oh, of yeah. capitalism just like pressing down on everything yeah and that's what it was replaced with yes right? like, that is like obama today. getting in there on a yeah. huge swell of popular support Instantly demobilizing right. his electoral <laughs> machinery on purpose, yes. like shooting it in the head like old yeller yeah. behind the barn, and then getting like a guy like Tim Geithner as your treasury yeah, secretary exactly. on like basically yeah. the same day. Uh, but that's because yeah, the, 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 you have uh, you create a political class that has no uh, uh, that is not accountable to, and, and why would any political class want to be accountable to anybody? It's right. just a question of they need you, right? And the new situation we've created is a Democratic Party where the the political class that makes up its its bureaucratic members and its its representatives no longer needs people to do anything other than vote. And that is an insufficient uh, check against them selling out people's interests. Down in prison, the Feelings of hate and a pain behind my eyes. Looking at a world that's shaking slightly, my ears are filling with rubbish. Can't find it and make it work. Hello, cruel world. Hello, cruel world. Walking through the Just pretend 